0: So good morning. My name is Stephen. Uh, I'm the family pastor here at Crosswinds Church, and it's always a pleasure to be able to get up and preach and share God's word with you. You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We also have the text up on the screen, and we're going to be starting in verse 10. But before we read, I want to ask you a very important question. Are you bored? Are you bored? I'm not talking about right now. I haven't been talking long enough for you to be that bored. <laughs> but in life, is life boring? Does it seem mundane? Is it frustrating? Does it seem like the same thing happens every day and you're just tired of being tired? You get up in the morning, you drink your coffee, and you do the same thing you did yesterday. You go off to work, or you take care of the kids, and you might be asking yourself, what am I doing? Am I meant for something bigger, better, greater? Now, I've always been a huge fan of amazing stories and adventure, The Hobbit, superheroes, Star Wars, but only the originals. And we see in stories like these individuals thrust into epic adventures where what they do really matters. Their lives are at stake, there's consequences for actions, and we sit on the edge of our seats as we read these stories or watch these movies, just waiting to see what will happen. And if you're like me, you may get up from watching these movies or reading these books and feel a little jealous. Jealous that your life may seem dull in comparison. But it's not just with big action movies. This can happen anytime we compare our lives with someone else's. Maybe it's on Instagram, Facebook, your coworker or friend's success, your friend's kids, oh man, I wish mine were like theirs. You may think of someone who has it bigger and better. You may not want to be like Luke Skywalker, but you may have someone else that you wish your life was like theirs. But the thing is, we are a part of this grand story, an epic adventure like no other, and you don't need to be famous or have superpowers to be in it. This is God's grand story that we have been invited to be a part of. And if we look at the beginning of Ephesians, we see that God has chosen us to be a part of his story from the very beginning, before anything was created. Think about that. If you are a servant to Christ, from before time began, God said, I want you to be a part of my epic plan. Right? It starts in creation. God makes everything. It's perfect. It's good. It's wonderful. There's no sin. There's no hate. There's no murder. And Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, reject his authority, reject his love, and it descends into chaos. The world is cursed and sin has entered in. And throughout the Old Testament, we're sitting here waiting for someone who's going to come fix it. Waiting for that special someone who's going to undo the curse and make everything perfect. And then we see Jesus. He comes and he dies and he redeems humanity back. Then at the end, we are told that Jesus is going to come and restore and make everything new again. No sin. No sadness. And we live in this in-between time. Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and we are still waiting for him to return. So the story isn't over. We may know the end. We know that Jesus is going to win. But we're in the middle of the story. We play a part in it. Paul in chapter 2 reminds the Ephesians that they have been saved from a life of sin to a life of righteousness And he specifically says in 2.10 that we are God's workmanship and that God has specific works of righteousness that he has made for us to do and to walk in. And Paul goes on to remind us of the unity we have in Christ which causes people who would never come together to become a family from different cultures, from different parts of the world. Young, old, Punk rockers, classical fans, those with tattoos and mohawks, and those with a suit and tie, all come together in Christ to be a family. And then Paul continues this idea of what does this mean to this unified family, this new life in Christ, it affects everything we do. And in chapters 4 and 5, in the beginning of 6, Paul is saying this new life in Christ and the unity we find should affect every way that we live. In chapter 4, he shows us that the unity that makes us a family causes us to do ministry together. In chapter 5, he continues and takes this turn not just to unity within the church body as we're gathered together, but as we scatter from the church into our various places, this still affects what we do. It affects the interactions between spouses, between parents and children, even employers and employees. Then we finally get to the chapter 6 in the passage we're looking at, the conclusion to this whole book. And as we see here, it says, finally. So everything that I've just kind of summarized about Ephesians is leading up to this part of the armor of God. Because all of this, the unity, the work together, all of this is needed. We need to have the armor of God for it. So let's read Ephesians six ten through 20. There's armor, right? A sword, a shield, all of this. And it's spiritual armor, so it's naturally spiritual warfare. But what do you think of when you hear the term spiritual warfare? I was listening to a pastor talk about this, and he shared this story. Back in the 70s, a young girl was playing with a Ouija board, and she contacts a spirit. Things go downhill from there. This little girl begins acting strangely, She starts using foul language, and her bed shakes violently one night. Eventually, a priest is called and attempts to cast the demon out. Is this what comes to your mind for spiritual warfare? This story is actually based on the plot of the 1973 movie, The Exorcist. And as this pastor was talking about this, he shared this story, and he said this really good point, I think, Sadly, a lot of Christians when it comes to spiritual warfare have been influenced more by Hollywood's portrayal of the spiritual than the Bible's. So if this isn't spiritual warfare, what is? Because it's the huge part of what we're talking about. It's this main point of being equipped for it. And we're part of this epic story. We're called on mission for God's glory to do the good works he called for us to make disciples for him in the unity of, that we have in Christ, Paul says, puts Satan and his demons to shame. It's a battle that goes on every day and every moment. But it's hard, right? Life is hard, if we're going to be honest. A lot of times we come to church and we're like, good morning, how are you? Oh, I'm great, how are you? And we put on these masks and we pretend everything's good and happy when on the inside we're like, life stinks. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to keep our eyes on the mission. There are so many days I would rather sit and watch Netflix instead of thinking about my mission, or walk around with my phone and my headphones in instead of looking at the people around me. But we are part of a story, a plan, a mission every day. And this is the armor we are talking about. right? Even in the mundane, there's spiritual warfare. In the times it's hard, it's depressing, all of that. Satan is doing whatever it takes to take us out of the fight. So right off the bat, Paul gives us a precursor for this armor. He says the only way you have a chance in this crazy, difficult world to live on mission is where you find your strength. And so I want to read verse 10 for us again. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. My strength is not enough. Your strength is not enough. It is only by God's strength. And Paul says it's not even just that God's strong. He has vast strength. It is more than enough. And as he's talked in Ephesians, he has said, man, God's strength is so big and he has proved himself that he brings people from the dead to life. He raised Jesus from the dead and he restores our hearts. But I don't think we need intellectual convincing that God is strong. We see it displayed in Scripture. We read stories of it. We're like, that's great. But what I think we need to be convinced of is that we truly need God's strength for every day. And that we need it daily, even just to put on the armor of God and be equipped. I normally don't get really stressed or anxious about things, Um, And a a few years ago, I was working on a sermon, and it was Saturday night, I may have procrastinated a little, and I'm working on this, and I get overwhelmed with this anxiety that literally sits on me, and I I don't know what to do, I feel paralyzed by it, and I'm thinking about God's strength, and I felt God just gently say to me, ask me for help. And so I obeyed, and I asked God to give me strength to continue, because I did not know how I was going to finish it. And you know what, it didn't make it all go away, but I had stress and this weird peace at the same time. And I felt the strength to go through and finish. And there are things we as humans try to rely on over God's strength. It's, It's an idea of where is our identity. Is it in my intellect, in my own physical strength, maybe my charisma, my humor, my friends, my family, my job, whatever it is, Right? It is only by God's strength and our identity as a servant of his that we will succeed. And this idea of needing God's strength is even more emphasized as we continue on when Paul starts talking about the enemy. So he tells us we need God's strength, and then he commands us to put on the whole armor of God, not some of it. We can't pick and choose what pieces we're going to put on. And he says, there's an enemy out there, not of flesh and blood. It's against a spiritual enemy, Satan and his minions. And I think this is so easily glossed over. We, we read this and we're like, yep, yep, Satan's there. And we just move on to the, the cool stuff like the sword and the shield. But this is really important. Because Paul is talking about an enemy that is seeking our complete and utter destruction. Our enemy is Satan and his demons and they are real this whole, con- this whole passage combats two ways of thinking. The first is to be overly scared of Satan. We as God's servants, walking in his power, in his strength, have nothing to fear. We're told Jesus has already won the war. We're given the complete ending that it's going to end well. Satan is going to be vanquished. He's going to be gotten rid of forever. We do not have to fear him. Jesus says in Matthew ten twenty eight. Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? Satan doesn't really have power. He only has the leash that God gives him. The other way of wrong thinking is to trivialize or disbelieve the spiritual. Right? Whether we only focus on the physical, this rationale, or we're like, oh, spiritual warfare, that only happens to missionaries in Africa. And in between these ideas is what Paul is talking about. We have a true enemy, but we can stand firm. We stand firm and fight in God's power in the armor he has given us. But if I'm honest, I've had times where I've made many things out to be the enemy that really aren't. And understanding this comes to, we don't always understand what our mission is. When we orientate ourselves to God's plans, to God's goals, we can know our part of his story. God is about his glory, so that is always what we need to be about as well. What am I doing to glorify God? But then as we see how God specifically interacts with humanity, God is seeking to bring humanity to him. That is what he's always been about. Because we need him and Jesus gives us this specific mandate in Matthew 28:19 through 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we're told the most glorious role we have in this story, it is to serve God, and a huge part of that is to make God known. To, undergo the same li- to help people undergo the same life transformation that we have gone through because of his saving grace. Right? That's why here at Crosswinds, our mission statement is reaching people with Jesus. It is who we are. We go out into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our schools, into our jobs, and we tell them about Jesus, teaching them to obey and be disciples. Even if we go all the way back to Genesis 3, when God addresses Satan there, he gives this promise that Satan is one day going to come and he's going to bruise the heel of this promised one, but this promised one is going to crush him forever. Right? Looking forward to the cross, right, this defining moment for humanity that God loved us so much that he came and died himself. And he calls us to love others. And if we're honest, we can believe it up here, but it can be a struggle in our hearts to get my hands and my mouth and my mind to really take these things seriously. To live out in God's power to love people. We too often make people out to be the enemy. People have been calling for the end of Christianity, not just today, but for the last 2,000 years, and it has not ended People are not our enemy, but so many times we make them out to be. We point out something in their life that we don't agree with. Maybe they have a sin we deem really bad. Maybe they have different political views. Maybe they're from a different culture or generation. They dress differently. They like different music, whatever it is. And we take the people that are supposed to be our mission, and we treat them like the enemy. And I think it grieves God's heart when we do this. I'm not saying that non-believers don't do anything wrong. I mean, that's kind of the defining point of not being a non-believer. You don't know Jesus. You don't know the right thing. At times, people are so opposed to the truth of God and it will come out in major persecution in other ways, but it's because people don't know Jesus. Jesus which is why we're called to proclaim the gospel. Because any person can move from going against God to being a part of our family. That was Paul. He was literally going around killing Christians, and God's like, you're mine now. And then we have books of the Bible. He spread all across the known world. Our enemy is Satan. And he schemes. The spiritual warfare we're talking about isn't Hollywood. It happens every day. The devil is consistently working, even in what seems like normal, everyday things, to discourage, to challenge, to tempt you. Anything to take you out of the fight. So when Paul says, put on the armor and fight, Satan's goal is to take us out. The war is waged, even what seems the mundane. And the Bible tells us that life is not a picnic, it's not rainbow and unicorns, but a battle an armed struggle against a powerful enemy. So let us not be tricked into taking our eyes and putting it on the wrong enemy. And Paul says, take up the armor. And only when we do this can we understand how to really know how to use it. So we're part of this epic story. We have a mission. We know where our power is to come from. We know who the enemy is. And now it's time to gear up for battle. It's time to pick up your lightsaber or put on your Spidey suit. Paul says, "Take up the full armor of God and prepare to take a stand." Right? We were talking about these epic stories. That line in any movie, right? Take up your armor and prepare to stand. We're all like, "Yes!" Like it's it's time. It's gonna happen, right? We should have that same thing. Like, man, I'm a part of this story. I get to be a part of this. Let's stand together. Paul is calling you into this beautiful, epic adventure. And for this adventure, he gives us six things we need to equip ourselves with. And one of them is the helmet of salvation. And he doesn't actually start there, but I think sometimes we like to start there. We want to put on our helmet of salvation, say, I'm saved, and then we go streaking off into battle. And that would be foolish, right? Just a helmet's not going to do much good. No, Paul says put on the whole armor. And the first one he talks about is truth. And so truth, which Paul likens to a belt, does not mean to wear a literal belt, that says truth on it. But if you want one, you can get one for $40. I looked it up. And this isn't the belt your dad used, where you would do something wrong and he would say, go get my belt, and you knew what was coming next. It's not that, but sometimes we treat the truth like that kind of belt. We beat people with it. The truth is not meant to attack people with. The truth is meant to save people. The truth is meant to attack Satan and his lies. Paul says just a few chapters earlier, speak the truth in love. That what we say really does matter just as much as how we say it. Right, Tea and coffee are great. Both need time to change the water. From flavored water to what we call tea and coffee. And we need to be that way with truth. We need to be steeped in it. We need to be in it that it can change us. Not just dunking ourselves in once on Sunday morning or once every little while. We need to absorb God's truth. We need to hide it in our hearts to know it to proclaim it to others, to stand against the enemy. Because Satan is a liar. He loves mixing truth with lies. So if we do not know really what God says, it's going to be hard to tell what is half-truth and what is actually true. We need time to study it. I encourage you. We had the, the, um, the Connect cards. Man, get involved in a life group. Start attending one. Be with other believers to encourage, to study God's word. And as we think about proclaiming truth, truth is where God's justice and his grace meet. A few years ago, my wife Jenny and I went to LA, and we're, we're walking down one of the famous streets, and there's a, a group of people with a bullhorn and signs basically saying, Repent or go to hell. It wasn't really that great. <laughs> To just scream the truth at someone doesn't take courage. It's easy to yell with a bullhorn and hold a sign. When we were in L.A., no one talked to those people. It was easy for them to sit there and just scream at others. It's really easy to just post things on Facebook, to just throw truth out there. And we just say, well, I'm just speaking the truth. But oftentimes we can be rude. We can be pushing people away. We give things without context. The gospel should be pulling people in. Because make sure when people do reject the gospel, they are rejecting Jesus, not what you're adding to it. I wish we had time to read John 4 and look at that. And it's Jesus with the woman at the wellness, this beautiful picture of truth and grace and justice and love all meeting as Jesus interacts with this woman who has lived this weird, kind of awful life. And Jesus meets her there, talks to her, shows her grace and love. She ends up being responsible for proclaiming him throughout a whole area. And we will never be perfect. We're called to pursue holiness and righteousness and to be like God. But the reality on this earth is we will not be perfect. We're going to get these things wrong. So what do we do if we sin or we've been struggling with these things? Well, I love how a pastor put it, to wear the belt of truth is to confess. We don't cover our sins, but confess them. We don't slander, but we speak honest words about others. Putting on the belt of truth is an act of faith that resists Satan's call to be a liar like him. We are called to put on the truth, to embody it for the world to see. And this leads us into the next thing his call to righteousness, which he likens to a breastplate. Right? Righteousness, doing the right thing, is our conduct, our actions reflecting holiness. This is the devout call to holy living, to be like God, both in action and in thought. We have no defense against accusations that Satan and others throw at us if we're not seeking to live the right way. This idea plays into our testimony of a changed life and the power of God to change wicked hearts that follow him to choose what is right, to live righteously. So he says, put on righteousness. In Colossians, Paul talks about taking off these old clothes, this, this wickedness, right? And putting on the new ones. So I want you to imagine you've, you've just worked out or maybe you've been outside and it's really warm like we all were wishing today was. And you get sweaty. You're just, you're drenched in sweat. And the first thing you want to do, right? You want to get clean. So you take a shower. You've gotten all clean. And then imagine just putting on those sweaty clothes, Or right? You put it on. You're like, it's mm, so moist, right? You wouldn't do that. That's gross. Right? Paul's saying the same thing. He's like, if you're going to be made clean by Jesus and then go back to doing those things, it's like putting on sweaty, dirty, nasty clothes again. He says, put on righteousness. Walk in righteousness. Walk that as a witness and a testimony to the power of God. If Jesus was right, which of course he is, when he says the truth will set you free, it is implied that truth will not be stagnant. It does not just sit in the head. It should go deep into our hearts and change things. But the church has a big problem that often we look so much like the world than we do different. And as we read throughout Scripture, God is calling his people from Israel to us to be different, and that is our witness. But divorce rates, when you look at them, are basically the same between the church and not the church. Pornography use rates are basically the same. We even have special code words to be able to act the same. I would never swear, but I'll change one, word, one letter and use that word. I don't get angry. I get frustrated. I don't gossip. I just share very detailed prayer requests for other people. It's this idea of respectable sins that we've let ourselves be okay with but still want to be able to say we look different. So are you prepared to fight? Are you prepared to step into the role in God's epic plan? The next piece of armor is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Our readiness to stand and to fight can only come from the peace we have from the burden of sin being removed make peace with God, deal with sins we still try to hold on to. But with this, are you ready to fight by being ready to share that same gospel? Are you ready to go? Because the reality is we are fighting over people's souls. Men, women, and children that are destined to hell and the eternal separation from God and we have what they need. And we're being called to take up this armor and storm the gates of hell by proclaiming this gospel of peace between God and man because of Jesus' work and death on the cross. And when a heart is changed, it is a huge win. Jesus tells the angels, celebrate when that happens. And you know, sometimes I feel like weeping over the souls of people that I have not witnessed to, that I've known. People I know God called me to talk to, and I was like, I'm busy, or I'm scared. And those weigh heavy on my heart. But it's not just the idea of peace of a changed heart. Jesus challenged us to change the world, right? When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, the gospel brings spiritual peace and physical peace to earth. It does not say peacekeepers, right? That we just sit back and kind of keep the peace, but peacemakers. We're called to go into the world and bring peace. And I love that we had a worship prayer night a couple of weeks ago to plead with God for peace in Ukraine. And we should seek to bring the same peace we were pleading for there to our homes, to our workplaces, to our schools be a living, breathing example of the peace that Jesus brings. Imagine what it would look like both for our community and our world if we brought this real peace, right? It would be amazing to see relationships restored, people laying down guns, all this stuff to bring peace. But think about the glory it would give God, that his people bring peace. There would be nothing to do except to be like, man, look at these people and their God and what he's doing, as his power flows and works through us. Right? It's e- easy for me to stand up here and say this and, and look at this. Right? We said life isn't easy, it's hard. It can seem boring, it can seem mundane, it's difficult, it can be depressing. It's not easy to follow God, but it's worth it. This is where faith comes in, which is what Paul lists next. Our faith is our shield. And we live in a culture that has kind of defined faith as having something that makes no sense. Like you believe in something that makes no sense, right? Like some sort of fairy godmother or a Disney magic or something like that. But that's not how the writer of Hebrews defines faith. He says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. We see evidence for God all the time. We see it in scripture, we see it in archaeology to support the people we read about and many other things, right? Have faith that God has worked and he still is working because Paul says, man, our enemy is throwing fiery arrows at us. These arrows can be tribulation, anguish, persecution, lack of resources, and they can bring us doubt, or lust, or greed, or vanity, or envy. Our faith is our shield. And all of these connect to each other. If we aren't rooted in the truth, we easily won't have faith, and we won't be able to stand for righteousness. And this is the idea of putting on the entire armor of God. Satan stokes fear and anxiety in hopes that we will retreat. He threatens us with social rejection, persecution, pain, and death tribulation, sorrow, famine, doubt, all of these things, any of this can take us out of the fight and off our mission if we let it. It is what our faith is in which is what is most powerful, not the faith itself. I love how one pastor put it. He was talking about someone who was terrified to get on a plane, could barely step foot on, was terrified, gets on the plane, right? And the plane goes and takes off. And he compared their little faith in a plane that is going to work is much better than if I have faith that my plane or my car is going to fly, and I get in my car and I drive full speed, hoping it's going to fly. Right? I may have all the faith in the world, but if I don't put it in the right thing, it's meaningless. And those that have put their faith in the right thing, Jesus, have blessed assurance, a salvation that strengthens and emboldens us, which brings us right into that salvation which we, we sometimes talk about as this like one-time event, but it's this like ongoing, perpetual thing, that this, this thing happened where I encountered Jesus, and I am forever changed, and there are ongoing results forever. Right? It's this idea of it's ongoing. Christ is working on me. We, we call this sanctification. He forever breathes life into us so that our eternal life begins now. It changes our hearts so that we can choose righteousness and follow him in this great and epic story. And like faith, our insurance of salvation is a wonder of defense when the storms and hardships of life comes our way. When life gets mundane or hard, that we are saved for the great story that God has placed us in. Right? But take heart, be encouraged that God, who has begun a good work in you, is going to continue. Like I said, you're not going to be perfect. We're going to drop the ball on a lot of these things. But the same God that saved you is working in you and will carry that out to completion. Right? This idea of Jesus changing our hearts, it really is a change that with sin, when I was enslaved to sin, I could only choose that. And Jesus literally changes our hearts. brings us from dead to life so that I can actually choose righteousness. Right? If we feel lacking, we seek God's power. We seek his help to put it on. And that's why we also have each other. I was talking to a friend yesterday about this sermon and just telling him my thoughts on it. And he really encouraged me and was kind of like, Stephen, you're, you're missing something in what you're saying. And he's like, man, we have the community of believers together. Right? When, when life is hard, don't miss that we are called to be there for each other, to encourage one another. We go to God for each other. We absolutely need one another. And then we get to the weapon mentioned, the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the word of God. God has revealed himself to mankind. He gave us a book so that we could know him intimately and be redeemed from sin by him. And he shares the truth of how to serve him well. And this is where we get our instruction for faith, for truth, and for righteousness. And we were, when we learn how to handle the sword well, we hide it in our hearts, and then we hold it out for the world to see. God's word is what we need for life. We also use it to escape from temptation as we flee to God. When Jesus was tempted, he responded each time with God's word. And we absolutely need to know it well because any deviance from God's word is now man's word. So if we're, we're browbeating or we're twisting God's word to fit mine, it is no longer God's word. It is mine. And there's an aspect of that that means we're taking God's name in vain. If we're saying God said this and he didn't really say it, that's a big problem. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword, God's word, aimed at the hearts of men, rescues them from darkness and strikes a blow at the enemy as each one is rescued from darkness and death into the love and life of Jesus. So Paul gives us this armor. He gives us all this stuff, and he says, "Go!" But he does leaves us with one more thing. He gets this idea of prayer. It's kind of this umbrella over all of this, that we at all times should be talking and listening to God, not just to pray for ourselves, but the idea of community praying for other believers, because we're a family. I think it's easy for us to think of this as as a personal armor, but it's not. That's where we are different from the epic stories where there's a lone wolf who goes out and saves the day. We're in this together. We are an army, a family. So Paul says, pray for one another. And he categorizes this. He gives us instructions on our prayer. He says, bring everything to God, all prayers and requests. It's not just what we want or need but really to bring our desires to him, our struggles, our decisions, as he guides us in his story. We're told to pray at all times. God is wanting to direct us at all times, to keep our ears open. I have only seen amazing things in in others in my own life when one makes this decision to listen to God and do even the scariest things that God calls us to do. Things that can make a huge difference in others' lives, or even bring someone to salvation. It might seem crazy if you're walking down the street and there's someone sitting on a bench and God's like, hey, go talk to them, right? That means, oh, that's scary, that's weird, I don't want to do this. Man, this is the epic story we're called into. We're told about our attitude in prayer, to be alert and persevere. Prayer is hard. It requires work and it's well worth it. As we pray, it helps us put on that armor. It orientates our hearts to be more like Christ and to seek his goals. And lastly, he says, pray for all the saints, our brothers and sisters in this church, in the city, in the state, and even around the world because we are called to this mission together. And then Paul closes with this really intimate, personal request for prayer that I think is beautiful. He's saying, pray for me that I live out the same purpose, that I don't lose sight of it. My purpose is just like all of yours, to share the message of the gospel. And Paul, as a prisoner, asks for prayer, specifically for boldness to speak as he should. Right, he's been arrested, he's been imprisoned, it'd be easy to be discouraged, and Paul's asking for that prayer to keep going. And if the great Paul was humble enough to ask for prayer and knew he needed it, we should be too. He knew his identity as a follower of God in the most wonderful story. So often we think of Paul as this super ninja Christian, but those don't exist. Paul was a real person with real struggles. Now I just want to come back to this idea. If you're discouraged... You struggle or feel lacking in any of these areas we've talked about, when we come to God's word and we, we see our wrong, it's not the time to beat ourselves up. It's the time to humbly repent and ask God to change us to be more like him. And I, I love this idea that, right, we, we feel disconnected when we're convicted of sin, but the reality is when we're convicted of sin, it is God talking to us, inviting us back into relationship with Him, into that intimacy. So we repent. We ask Him to help us. We ask Him to change our hearts, to develop the things we need. And we immerse ourselves in God's Word so we can know who He is and how to follow follow Him well. We live in a world full of sin where we have a true enemy seeking our destruction. We have a sin nature and our new spirit is opposed against. So I want to encourage you this week to to seek God to equip you for this story in the mundane, in the hard, in the difficult. Our world promotes a story of expressive individualism. Self-expression, self-identification are its supreme virtues. But we are a part of the body of Christ we bear one another's burdens. We, spare, we spur each other on to love and good works. We hold each other accountable and help each other remain equipped with the armor of God. And this peace that surpasses all understanding, the love of God, the faith that overcomes, all summed up in the armor of God are three precious treasures are for those who follow and seek God. And he will freely give And all these things are imperishable. They last. We have a mighty God, and I'm thankful that in him we draw our strength from when the story is hard, when we feel like we can't go on. We can through his power and his work in us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for being gracious and loving to us. Lord, I pray that you will embolden us in your story, in your mission as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.